a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Once again, we have gathered at this breathtaking point of inspiration to revel in wrong think. No better person to do that with than my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty good, Brian, but I'm reluctant to even open my front door because for all I know, there might be a needler waiting for me outside. Oh, man, the the pressure to, <laughs> to vaccinate is, is very intense. You know, it's funny. Maybe it's just the circle of people that I run with. Um, some people have vaccinated. Primarily, it's because their jobs required it or, you know, maybe they wanted to, to go travel or something. But the the intense media pressure and political pressure, what are we to make of that? Well, we make of it the same thing that we made about the uh, the face diapering, the masking. Uh, they were pressuring people to do that, have been pressuring people to do that for nearly a year now as the predicate for what we're seeing now, which is the pressure to have a substance of unknown provenance injected into your body, one that the manufacturer is not liable for in the case of any unforeseen consequences, which astounds me. Um, we were talking a little bit off the air about the fact that the majority of people who are lining up frantically to get this jab uh, are on the left side of the spectrum. And formerly, before weaponized hypochondria took hold, those people were generally suspicious of what was styled big pharma, which was right up there with big oil, sort of an, uh, an evil money-grubbing enterprise that was using its political swag to get people to buy into its products. But now they're the first people bum-rushing to have Big Pharma shoot them up with something which Big Pharma has caged a legal immunity from any liability for. It's quite something. Yeah, you made the case, I think, numerous times. This is still very experimental. This is not like, mm -hmm. this isn't settled science and, oh, yeah, we've been doing this for years. We know what to expect. It, they've rushed this at every turn. Well, I draw the parallel with uh, a person who um, has been diagnosed with a fatal illness that has uh, resorted to some experimental treatment as sort of a Hail Mary desperate attempt to stay alive. Now, in that case, it makes perfect sense because you're going to die, probably. You know, you've got a, 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 an actual illness that is actually going to kill you. But now we have this bizarre thing of people who are perfectly healthy, and perfectly healthy people have about a 99.8 something percent chance of not dying from the Rona, lining up to receive an experimental treatment that will do God knows what to them uh, without even so much as a, a wink or a nod about the worry of it. It's, it's perplexing to me. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, would you be okay, though, with people who want the vaccine? You wouldn't stand in their way of getting it, would you? Of course not, for the same reason that I hope nobody stands in the way of me eating a pound of bacon if I want to. It's my business, it's their business. That's fine. Just like I've not really had a problem with people who want to walk around with that ridiculous face diaper on if they wish to. I'm not opposed to somebody looking like a moron if, that they, if they want to. If somebody wants to walk around with a dunce cap on their head, they can. Just don't tell me that I must and don't expect me to uh, regard it as something other than bizarre and idiotic. 
Well, and the biggest concern I see, particularly with the vaccinations, is uh, the discussion increasingly seems to be gravitating towards this has got to be mandatory. This is such a good idea. It should be enforced at the point of a gun. Well, they have to uh, because so many people are not going to do it. It's very much of a piece, again, with the masks. Uh, when it was optional before it was enforced by uh, corporations, which are now the handmaidens of the government, most people weren't doing it. But they succeeded in getting most of these corporations to uh, impose it as a condition of service or as a condition of employment, and that defeated large swaths of the population that put the filthy things on and continues to wear the filthy things. And they're going to deploy the same tactics with regard to this vaccine. I doubt that they're going to make it a legal requirement, uh, that's 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 too clumsy and cumbersome. What they'll do, as with the face masks, is tell you that if you wish to continue working here, you're going to have to get it. And they've already said if you wish to attend a sporting event, if you wish to travel by air, for example, right. and uh, the whole gamut of things. So what they're going to do is marginalize pariah eyes and exclude from living anybody who hasn't bent knee to this thing. That's the way that this is going to go unless there's tremendous pushback, and that pushback had better occur soon. Well, it's. I think this is going to be up to the courageous individuals. You know, I, I don't see, I don't see very many people in positions of power taking a bold stand on principle and saying this is wrong to force people to do this. So it's going to DeSantis be people like you leading out. DeSantis has in Florida, and I think Nome in South Dakota has as well. So don't give up hope yet. Uh, there are people in positions of authority um, who have a public voice uh, who have opposed this. You and I are among them too. And it's really, really important for us not to be silent and and passive and complicit in this. We have to fight this uh, with every bit of energy that we have and all the tools at our disposal. It's a moral obligation to do that, in my opinion. No, I would would agree. By the way, it was uh, back on March 3rd, I believe, that Texas and Mississippi completely lifted their pandemic restrictions. And do you remember some of the dire predictions of Of how reckless and irresponsible that was? Uh, Give me your thoughts. We had three weeks or so since then. Um, uh, Are are the Texans pretty much wiped out? Well, in fact, I just read this morning that the cases, the cases are down in Texas. So there are fewer cases, fewer problems since the, the lifting of all of these mandates and lockdowns. And that has been 100% the case in every case where this has happened. You might recall uh, the Sturgis rally, the motorcycle rally in South Dakota last year. Then there was the Super Bowl. I mean, you can come up with a million of these examples almost where uh, the chorus erupted with, oh, my God, it's a super spreader event. The cases, everybody's going to die. The cases, the cases. And then nothing happens. And, of course, nothing is reported about the fact that nothing happens in order to maintain this fear narrative to get people to to remain in this state of hysteria where they're willing to do exactly what they're told. It's nothing more than than fear-induced trauma conditioning. No, that's that's a good way to put it. I, I saw a portion of the president's statement yesterday about, you know, the lifting of these uh, mask mandates and so yeah. forth, and it was straight out of Orwell. He's like, you know, these governors and mayors that have listed these ma- lifted these mask mandates, put them back. This isn't politics. And I'm like, oh, come on. Of the fact that you're politics. saying that says that it is. Of course it's politics. Rand Paul, when he was grilling uh, Pope Fauci the 17th about a week ago, made that exact point. Uh, he asked why Fauci, who has been vaccinated and is therefore immune from the Rona, uh, is walking around wearing two face diapers. And the same is true of Biden, who continues to walk around with his double face diapers. 
these guys have been vaccinated. Now, if we if we accept their argument that the vaccine renders you immune, you don't have to worry about the Rona, then why are they walking around with double diapers on? It's purely theater. It's designed, again, to perpetuate this hysteria and the fear of a virus that doesn't kill 99.8-something percent of the healthy population. Well, and, and I know people like me want to know, why would someone insist on keep the fear going, keep stoking that fear, keep making people feel like they've got to show, you know, they've got to wear the mask, they've got to get the vaccination? Yep. What what exactly is the angle they're working for? I don't think it's a health standpoint. I think there's something else at play here. Well, isn't it obvious? It's about control. It's about complete control of every single individual in the name of health, in the name of keeping us safe. This is This is the the weaponized version of every other thing that has been attempted in the past, things like the climate change, the the safety cult generally that I've been ranting about for low these past 20-something years, uh, it is all about positing some kind of a boogeyman that's going to get us all. And uh, the, the, the way to prevent the boogeyman from getting you is to do what you're told. That's what this is all about. Yep, I think you nailed it. That's, that should be our new national motto, not United We Stand, not the land of the free. Sure. Do what you're told. That's exactly right. And note that we're not allowed to ask reasonable questions anymore. To raise a reasonable uh, question uh, results in immediate warbles of your anti-vax, your anti-this, your whatever, your anti-science. And, of course, note that the questions are never answered. If you, if you make the entirely factual uh, statement about the fact that the virus does not kill 99.8% of the healthy population. So why does 100% of the healthy population have to submit to a vaccine that probably carries more risk, or at least could carry more risk, than the risk of the virus itself? Somehow that is, is, is something that's going to result in what amounts to the equivalent of being in Salem back in the 1600s. Witch! Witch! Burn the witch! And that tells you a lot about what you need to know. I think the most discouraging thing that I have experienced over the last year is the realization that uh, there are so many authoritarians among us. Yeah, absolutely. Passive, complicit authoritarians. Uh, you know, people often wonder, there's the, the, uh, the old saw about how could those, those civilized, cultured Germans allow this to happen in their country? And Zolzhenitsyn examined the same thing. How could... Uh, intelligent, educated people in, in uh, pre-Soviet Russia stand for this and allow this. And it is because people are cowardly, and a lot of people um, are also quite willing to make other people suffer if it will somehow benefit them. It, it, it plays to a mean streak that unfortunately exists in a lot of people who, if they are unwilling to take a stand and have to submit to something, will then lash out at the people around them that they see who are brave and questioning and who don't want to go along with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We get together once a week and just kind of compare notes on what's going on around us and Eric, the message of freedom still is as relevant today as it ever was, but uh, it seems like the the pushback and the opposition to it has has intensified. Something that you made me aware of that uh, is is still kind of keeping me awake at night is a proposal to start taxing us by the mileage that we drive. This has been yep. proposed in, in different states. I know Oregon was looking at this. Uh, uh, did they actually pass that here a couple of years ago? 
they had a pilot program. It hasn't been made mandatory yet, but yeah, their intention is to make it mandatory. And the latest proposal, which was announced by the new Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, is to uh, enact such a thing at the national level, which would mean every state has to kowtow to it. And the thing about it that's alarming, well, there are actually two things, is that one, um, it wouldn't just be a replacement for the gas tax. Uh, it would be in addition to the gas tax. So in addition to paying $3 a gallon or more for gasoline to fuel your vehicle, you'd also be uh, dunned for every mile that you drive. That's the first thing people should know about. And the second thing is, how are they going to dun you by the mile? Well, they're going to keep track of you. They are going to require probably that your car report to them uh, where you go and how far you go and all of these other fun things. And if it can do that, uh, it can also report to the insurance mafia uh, things such as whether you're driving to speed limit and even whether you're buckled up for safety <laughs> because you know what? Your car is well aware of all of these things. If you have a modern car with a computer, all that data is inside the car. And if they have access to that data, which they do, if you have one of these cars, you should read your end-user uh, lease arrangement for it. Uh, they're going to have absolute control over everywhere you can potentially go, which is to say over your mobility, which is something that really ought to terrify people. Yeah, that's the angle that, that probably disturbs me the most. I don't like taxes, just on principle. I, you know, the taxes are yep. distasteful. But the idea of government or some bureaucracy keeping track of my movements, that yep. really chills me. Which it should, absolutely. And they want to get their hooks into that uh, as a way to, for example, make it more expensive in order to make it more difficult to live out in the country or far away from the cities. They want to punish people who do such things and use their economic power, their, their power to economically nudge people toward these urban hive cities, which is part of their, uh, their long-range agenda and goal, which isn't some quote-unquote conspiracy theory. You can read about this. Just uh, go out into a search engine and type in uh, Agenda 2030, and the documents are all there and available for anybody who cares to read them. Now, I'm curious, is this going to be a standard applied only to those with internal combustion engines, or at least uh, gasoline engines, or is it going to also be applied to, for instance, uh, those with electric vehicles or, uh, you know, natural gas vehicles? Are they going mm -hmm. to be uh, squeezed as well for this road tax? Well, I think they'd have to apply it to all. Uh, there would be quite a hue and cry if some vehicles were exempt. And electric car owners should be aware that they'll probably end up being hit with an even higher tax, since after all, they don't pay the motor vehicle, they don't pay the gas tax at the pump. So, using the language of the left, that's very unfair. Mm. In order for them to pay their fair share, they should also have to pay a proportionately higher tax. And electric cars are the most amenable to being tracked, monitored, and controlled because all of them are connected to a hive mind. Um, meaning that they, they can send and receive software updates. Some people may, have, um, re may recall the stories during the hurricane season about a year or two ago when Tesla sent out over-the-air updates, which uh, suddenly, magically, uh, endowed the cars with uh, a longer range than they, than they had come with before. And implicit in that is they could shorten the range, if they wished, at the throw of a switch. And let's say that you're a vaccine refusenik uh, or a face diaper refusenik. They could simply re reduce your range to zero and lock down your car. Wouldn't it be convenient in the next lockdown if all they had to do was to throw a switch, literally, that made your vehicle bricked and made it impossible for you to leave your house? Now, you mentioned that uh, Buttigieg used the, uses the term um, 
what did he call it? Investing? Investment. Investment. Well, how, do, how does a politician's use of the term investment differ from the way you and I might use it? Well, in the first place, it's, it's their idea of what the money is going to go toward. You and I make decisions about what we're going to do with our money, and that's an actual investment. Um, what he's trying to, uh, to accomplish here with a verbal shuck and jive is to manipulate language from uh, the, the understanding that the motor fuels tax meant was, was put toward the investment in road infrastructure, toward building new roads, maintaining existing roads. That is the investment that you make when you buy a gallon of gasoline and you pay 50 cents a ta- of tax on that gallon of gasoline. But uh, Buttigieg wants you to invest in climate change, you see, and that's, that's something probably most of us would choose not to invest in if we had the free choice not to. Interesting. Well, there's, there's no shortage of things to keep track of here if you're determined to maintain your freedom. And I know you and I are committed to this. I suspect those listening to us are as well. You also had a recent article on banks. And yeah. I, I don't mean to add to anybody's dread, but uh, talk to me about your experience at the bank. Well, you know, banks have become kind of another adjunct of the government. This idea of you being the, the customer, and remember when the customer was always right, and uh, the employees of the institution that you did business with would bend over backwards to make sure you were happy. A lot of people will probably uh, be familiar with what I'm talking about. You go to a bank now, and they, they will grudgingly deal with you if you, uh, if you do exactly what they want you to do. I have, two business, I have two accounts. I have a personal checking account, and I have a business account for my EP Autos website. And since I'm a sole proprietor, it's just me, and my name is on both accounts. And I went there to try to cash a check that was written out to my business account. And I had to essentially pull teeth to get the teller to um, deign to cash a check made out to me, to my account, uh, because apparently she just wasn't interested in, in doing that. And it astounded me. And anybody who's attempted to withdraw money or do any other such thing with banks these days will be very familiar, I think, with what I'm talking about. Um, and it's frustrating because you're compelled to deal with these people. It's very hard uh, to operate in the modern world any longer without a bank. Um, and they know that, of course. It's sort of like attempting to deal with an insurance company when you have to haggle with them over the, uh, the premium adjustment they sent. They know they've got you. What are you going to do? Right. Um, so give me, your ta- give me your take on cryptocurrency, blockchain, and that sort of stuff. Do you see, uh, do you see a time coming where uh, perhaps blockchain technology combined with cryptocurrency might uh, take the middleman bank out of this equation? You know, I don't know enough about that really to, to comment intelligently. The thing that worries me, though, about it is that it's digital. I don't like the idea of a currency that, that seems to have nothing behind it other than people's faith in it that's controlled by, again, some faraway remote entity. Uh, I, uh, yeah, maybe I'm a Neanderthal, but I like the idea of tactile, real, tangible money, things of actual value like gold and silver. And if you have to have paper money, uh, paper money that is backed by gold and silver and, and other tangible things of value, because it's much, much harder to take away things that you physically possess and much harder to reduce the value uh, arbitrarily of something that has intrinsic value in and of itself. I'll tell you, between the uh, you know coercion to to get the vaccine and you know get your medical passport and 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 some of the the different uh, the different ways people are trying to assert control, I don't mm-hmm. know, man. I I could see myself uh, becoming much closer to living off the land, you know, a son of the soil, so to speak, uh, in, in response. Well, you know, you and I are lucky because we're middle-aged guys, and we're at that point in life. 
um, where we could potentially do something like that. I really feel bad for the younger crowd that has to make a way in this life and has to work and has to do all these things to to accumulate wealth so that they could potentially go out and buy a piece of land and build a cabin out somewhere and go Amish, as we could. Um, I hope that it doesn't come down to that. I continue to hope that people will take a breath and that sanity will be restored. And more than, more than that, frankly, I hope that people will begin to say enough of this and begin to get angry about the way they're being pushed and manipulated and lied to and threatened and terrorized. Uh, it, it makes me mad when I think about it, and I, I hope that more people begin to get angry about it, too. Eric, it is always great to visit with you. You're a shot of encouragement, even though we talk about some not-so-fun stuff here. Yep. I hope, uh, hope we have a chance to talk again next week. Likewise, we will. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I do want to mention that we have some wonderful sponsors who make it possible for me to engage in wrong think with you each day. And I'm very grateful for them. They include HSLAmmo.com, Pure Light. You can access them at pure-light.com. This is the next generation of light bulbs. Also, Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Yes, there is a special little uh, section in my show notes today which recognizes each of these sponsors as well as provides links to each of them so that, uh, you know, if you have need of their services or if you just want to thank them for sponsoring the show, you can do that. You know, when Texas lifted its pandemic mandates and opened up the state, do you remember this a few weeks ago? I mean, that was big news. For a lot of people, it was like, wow. And, and of course, Florida had already lifted their uh, pandemic mandates, and other states have followed suit. And, of course, the lockdowners insisted this is a dangerous, reckless policy. Well, it's been a few weeks, so we've had time to see, you know, what was going to happen. And guess what? It's clear that uh, dangerous, reckless, nope, that's not what happened. In fact, John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education has a terrific article that spells out just how wrong the naysayers were in all of their doomsaying. Texas's low COVID numbers are encouraging, he says, but they're not unique. Miltimore says on March 2nd, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced he was lifting all government restrictions aimed at limiting the spread of COVID-19. Abbott tweeted, I just announced Texas is open 100%. Everything. I also ended the statewide mask mandate. Now, if you remember, this decision caused a stir among politicians and some public health experts, though numerous other states had been operating without restrictions for months. Governor Abbott's failure to listen to science and medical advice will cost Texans their lives, Representative Joaquin Castro warned in a statement. The easiest thing people can do to slow the spread of COVID is to wear a mask and keep a social distance. Then you have Jennifer Nuzzo, a senior scholar at the John Hopkins Center for Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. She, <coughs> she told the BBC, these states' liftings of me- lifting of measures are quite premature. And then not to be outdone, San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich said, they're trying to do a good job of keeping everybody safe. Of course, they want to open up. Getting rid of masks just seems ignorant to me. 
Well, nearly a month after Abbott's announcement, the data are in. And John Miltimore uh, reports on this, saying the coronavirus cases have dropped to a record low in Texas roughly three weeks after the state lifted its mask mandate and reopened business. By the way, that's reported in Newsweek as well. And John Miltimore says the news magazine was referencing new data touted by Abbott showing that the Lone Star State saw its seven-day COVID positivity rate, that's the rate of tests coming in positive, hit a new low, 4.95%, while hospitalizations reached a six-month low. According to the Texas Department of State Health Services, at least 1,900 new virus cases were reported on Sunday, which is the lowest daily number the state has seen since early June. That's according to Newsweek. They say data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the seven-day moving average number of cases in Texas dropped to the lowest level since mid-June. Now, I would understand if everybody finds that encouraging. I certainly do. John Miltimore just points out, yes, Texas's numbers are encouraging, but they're not particularly unique. The same day that Abbott made his announcement, Mississippi declared it, too, was lifting all state restrictions. And Mississippi's case pattern looks markedly similar to Texas's. And by the way, he has, uh, he has tweets and, and images here showing the graphs that will show you record low cases. Isn't it curious the media treats this very differently? They're still talking about, well, you know, it's the most dangerous time because now the cases are on the rise. But there's a lot of rhetorical sleight of hand taking place here. John Miltimore says, despite the widespread warnings that Texas and Mississippi were needlessly risking the lives of their citizens, both states saw cases and deaths decline after lifting all restrictions. And he asks, why? One answer might be that residents in Texas and Mississippi continue to take sensible precautions as public health officials in these states recommend. For example, Thomas Dobbs, Mississippi State Health Officer, urged people to continue to use discretion and exercise caution despite the absence of legal restrictions. Dobbs said, don't do stuff or do stuff outdoors. Don't group together indoors with lots of folks. You can catch COVID, COVID rather, he says, we can mess this up. Now, John Miltimore says, look, voluntary action is always going to be better. From the beginning of the pandemic, there was a fear that Americans wouldn't exercise caution and prudence absent the heavy hand of force. But this concern was always overblown. Evidence shows Americans were taking precautions well before government officials imposed sweeping restrictions, which makes those restrictions seem all the more opportunistic to me. But that's just me. Miltimore reports, Americans living in red states appear to have taken the crisis plenty seriously. Data shows that residents there were staying home well before their governors issued stay-at-home orders. That's uh, from 538 back in May, pointing out research from Cubig, a private data company that assessed the movement of people via GPS data. And John Miltimore says this suggests that people are more than capable of taking precautions, maintaining space, washing hands, wearing a mask, that they feel are reasonable. Those precautions are reasonable. They don't have to be forced to take them. In fact, if I could just offer this thought, if, if you get to the point where an idea is so good that you have to force it on people, you have failed to convince them that it's a good idea. That's on you, not on them. Miltimore says using force in the case of the pandemic seemed natural to many, but it sprang from a desire to protect people from a deadly virus. But this was a mistake. 
He quotes uh, Nobel laureate economist Milton Friedman in his book, Is Capitalism Humane? Friedman said, whenever we depart from voluntary cooperation and try to do good by using force, the bad moral value of force triumphs over good intentions. And the data coming out of Texas and Mississippi, as well as Florida, are yet more evidence that the benefits of this force have been oversold. An abundance of research suggests lockdowns achieve very little, if anything. Meanwhile, their harms are clear, though often ignored by lockdown proponents. So John Miltimore says it's time Americans recognize that lockdowns are policies born of fear that have caused irreparable damage, economic destruction, surging suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, and increased poverty. Fortunately, he says, because of the system of federalism which distributes power across the states, this truth is finally being revealed. Soon it will be recognized. Now, he reminds us of German philosopher author Arthur Schopenhauer, who reputedly said, all truth passes through three stages. Now, this may be an apocryphal saying, but listen to this and tell me this doesn't ring true. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. John Miltimore says the failure of lockdowns and other government restrictions are still in stage two, but stage three is rapidly approaching. By the way, there's a great follow-up article here, too. Um, Anders Koskinen has a great piece about letting the kids play despite COVID. Because even as the COVID vaccines keep rolling out in the millions, the fear-mongering of the American media continues unabated. For instance, he cites a recent uh, CNN article instructing parents on what to do if you're vaccinated but your kids aren't. Now, of course, while Pfizer vaccine is authorized for people 16 and older, other vaccines are only approved for those 18 and up. And younger children may have to wait another year until vaccination is possible. So what do you do when little Jimmy wants to see his friends? How on earth can children potentially infected with a virus play together? Well, CNN medical analyst Dr. Lena Wen states that if three or more families with unvaccinated children want to get together, they should either quarantine for a week and get tested or quarantine 14 days before any play date. What this means is no other gatherings, especially indoors during this period, according to Dr. Wen. As for playdates, even between just two families with unvaccinated kids, quote, for now, the, while the United States has a high baseline level of coronavirus circulating, it's best for families with any unvaccinated individuals to see one another outdoors only, with members of different families spaced six feet apart. If children are playing together and can't always abide by six-foot distancing, they should be wearing masks. End quote. I like Anders Koskinen's response here. Oh, joy. What fun. Now, the article's author, Katya Heder, keeps asking specific questions of Dr. Wendell. What about traveling? What about restaurants? What about seeing Grandpa? And these questions are answered with an oft-repeated refrain, and that refrain ought to be the better part of government policy, but instead it's been almost universally rejected by state governors and federal officials for most of the pandemic. And that's simply, I think it's important to clarify that there's virtually nothing that's 100% safe. Everything is about understanding the relative risk and then trying to gauge the risk and manage it for each family. That's Dr. Wen. Anders Koskinen says a further clarification to Wen's statement is, that nothing about anything is 100% safe. Life is a terminal condition after all, and it is the responsibility of every individual to decide what risks they're willing to take and which they would rather avoid. For some people, their highest priority is ensuring they endure for as long as possible. Others are far more concerned with being able to live life normally. 
I think I'm in that latter group. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. As we came to the break, I was sharing with you an article from Anders Koskinen from intellectualtakeout.org. Strongly recommend if you don't have that bookmarked on your browser, you should check in there, probably daily. So much good material, lots of different contributors, and it's all very principled and and very thought-provoking stuff. I'm not saying you have to agree with it. I'm just saying they have, have done a marvelous job of highlighting things from a, from a less partisan, more principled point of view. And I was sharing this article from Anders Koskinen, Let the Kids Play Despite COVID. And he points out that even this, uh, this Dr. Wen, um, who, who was being interviewed by CNN, uh, she's a medical analyst for CNN, Dr. Leanna Wen, was talking about nothing is safe. I have to clarify that virtually nothing is 100% safe. Everything's about understanding the relative risk and trying to gauge the risk and manage it for each family. And so for some people, it's going to be, well, my highest priority is ensuring I endure. I avoid, you know, whatever infection. I live as long as possible. Others are just more concerned about being able to actually live life normally. Anders Koskinen says parents should be managing their children's risk factors responsibly, but not neurotically, and certainly not by simply following whatever Dr. Wen or Dr. Fauci tell them to do. They should determine for themselves what acceptable risk is and how much they're willing to limit their children's social and educational development to avoid even the slightest chance of contracting COVID-19. Also, he says some context may help. According to the CDC, children between 0 and 13 are in the age group which consistently registers the lowest number of COVID cases per 100,000 persons. Teenagers 14 to 17 have the second lowest infection rate. Now, the CDC also reports that as of March 24th, American children ages 0 to 17 have suffered just 238 deaths involving COVID-19. For 18 to 29-year-olds who have the next lowest COVID mortality count, there have been 1,916 deaths, eight times that of children. So children aged 0 to 17 make up 0.05% of all COVID-related deaths. That's astonishing. That is absolutely an astonishing number, but 0.95% of all deaths. Their share of deaths is 19 times that of their share. Their share of all deaths, rather, is 19 times that of their share of COVID-related deaths. So maybe our worrying priorities could be better directed after all. Koskinen says, meanwhile, while there's just one COVID-19 death per million for children ages 5 to 14, there are 9.4 suicides and 4.7 homicides per million. So in light of this, maybe we should take a new University of Michigan report more seriously when it notes that 49% of parents have noticed a new or worsening mental health condition for their teen since the start of the pandemic. He says slightly more than half of parents tried relaxing family COVID-19 rules to allow their teen to have more contact with friends in hopes of decreasing such negative thoughts. Over 80% of parents who tried this approach say it helped their teens. Look, the point here, in case, you know, it, it, it's not obvious enough here. Everything in life is a case in risk management. 
From the jobs we take to the travel plans we make to the people we associate with, each choice has potential benefits and consequences. In order to live a meaningful life free from the paralysis of fear, we all must weigh risks and benefits against each other. Now, COVID-19 doesn't seem to be the biggest threat looming over the heads of small children. And if your decision-making process for your kids is not heavily informed by information concerning their potential deaths in transportation accidents or by cancer, suicide, homicide, or heart disease, then their potential death from COVID-19 should not be anywhere near or anywhere close to the most important of your considerations. And to this he says, let the kids play. Yeah, I would agree. Why is it common sense is so uncommon in this age? I guess that's a question we'll be exploring in the days ahead. Now, if you're a truth seeker, you already know seeking the truth is one thing. Speaking it is quite another, and it's getting harder to speak the truth. This is especially true when it comes to uh, defending your point of view or making your point of view in the face of opposition. And people who are experiencing opposition often have a negative reaction. Oh, they pushed back. They called me names. What a horrible thing. And I would just say, relax, that's the price of of standing for something. Paul Rosenberg has this marvelous series of essays about uh, fallacies and other uh, word-borne attacks that people use to try to prevent others from either speaking the truth or from accessing the truth. And I'm going to share a couple excerpts from his latest essay. I would encourage you, subscribe to his Free Man's Perspective newsletter, and you'll get this in your inbox every week. He says, before we continue with word-borne attacks, I should add that I include deceptions as attacks. Now, they differ from direct attacks, of course, but the goal is still to abuse us, even if it's indirectly, or maybe even especially, if we don't think we're being misused. Misused, rather. So he says, today I'm going to focus on a couple of tricks used in public speaking, everything from political speeches to sermons to any other type of lecture. This rings very true, by the way. The first one is the fog of complexity. He says, a common trick of public speakers, especially if they can claim any sort of authority or make a, can make a passable claim that authority stands behind them, is to surround their objectionable or questionable statements with so much complexity, scientific terms, strings of complex numbers, large and impressive words, foreign language quotes, and so on, that following them precisely is all but impossible. And what that means is dissecting the arguments of such a presentation is simply impractical. Almost no one's mentally quick enough to follow the complex material as it passes. Even those few who might be able probably won't want to expend the necessary effort. So the argument can't really be critiqued. But if the speaker can put his or her points together in a sequence that is understandable, and if that sequence seems to arrive at a reasonable conclusion, well, most people will accept it as true, or at least accept the verdict of the speaker as a primary conclusion. So he says the essential solution to this problem is to accept that you didn't understand it. And that's hard, because people are deeply afraid of appearing stupid. If there are people in the audience and no one else is saying, ah, I don't follow your argument, the first person who says so risks being branded as stupid by the others. And most human beings are very sensitive to such things. So he says, one of the most important intellectual lessons of life is to learn how to say things like, I don't understand, and I'm ignorant on that subject. Once you can learn to say things like these, openly, eagerly, and before anyone else, you've made a major step forward. And he says the price of saying such things is to accept that a few people might ridicule you. 
So we see, once again, the ability to think clearly involves emotional strength far more than it does intellectual strength. And in particular, it involves the ability to accept pain. Now, that's unfortunate, but that is the current state of this world. And we can either pay that price or be subject to manipulation at all times. Sorry. Once you've realized that you couldn't or you didn't really follow the argument, which you don't necessarily have to tell others, you're in a fairly safe position. From there, you have basically three choices. You can decide the whole thing really doesn't matter that much to you and you don't want to spend a great deal of effort analyzing a poorly made argument. You'll have to say, eh, I didn't really follow it and I don't care that much to others if they ask. But aside from that, you can simply leave it behind. Secondly, you can get some time alone or perhaps with a like-minded friend and slowly dissect the argument. That should lead you to the embedded errors and to enable you to make some guesses on the speaker's hidden motives. Third, get a transcript of the argument and go through it slowly. Now, this, of course, is the best method because you'll be shocked how easily lies, omissions, and bad arguments show up when you're going carefully through a transcript. You might be surprised to see how weak or even childish the arguments of the high and mighty really are. Now, there's also the trick of velocity. This means if a speaker goes too quickly, people simply can't keep up. They can consider the surface arguments well enough, but not the implications of them and not the assumptions they stand upon. If such a fast speaker can keep his or her surface arguments simple enough, people tend to follow along. They won't dig any deeper because they have no time to dig deeper. By the way, certain evangelists have majored in this. And if at the same time others are nodding their heads in agreement or otherwise agreeing, it's all too easy for people to follow along. The surface argument is reasonable after all. So again, he says the first step in dealing with this is to recognize and accept that you didn't really follow and to risk being seen by others or maybe even yourself as stupid. After that, the three choices he listed before work very well. Now he says it's interesting to see in both of these cases that accepting our limitations is crucial for dealing with them and transcending them. It's when we deny them that we become vulnerable. Also in both of these cases, the fundamental cure for the problem is simply time. We don't have to be natural-born geniuses to cut through deceptions. We just have to be willing to spend some time on them. He talks about the phrase, the bum's rush. You've heard of this? It's the reference to throwing a bum out of a bar, grab the back of his shirt and the back of his pants, and keeping his inertia forward all the way out the door. Well, that's what's happening when you encounter the velocity trick or the complexity trick. You're being given the bum's rush. The speaker wants to get you moving and wants to get you to his or her conclusion without giving you the opportunity to dig down into the falsehoods underlying it. I'll have a link to this essay in the show notes at thebrianheitshow.com. I hope you'll check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.